Well, friends, I want to welcome you back to our series called Stressed. For the last two weeks, we've had a bit of a pause button. We've, we've waited. We've held, a, held off on stress, but we let the uh, wonderful backdrop remain because we didn't want John to have to take it down for those two weeks. It would be stressful to take away all those rubber bands and put them back up again. But the last two weeks, we've talked about other topics. Today, we're back into that series. Because it's been a while, let me review what we've been talking about. I hope you know that stress is simply defined as the human body's reaction to change. Anytime you go through a change in your life, it is stressful. You feel the pressure, sometimes anxiety. There's something in you that, oh, this is different. When you just coast on autopilot because everything's the same day to day, that's one thing. But those moments are rare. Change is much more common. Unwelcome change creates levels of stress. For instance, when you get sick. It might be something as minor as a cold. Someone was just coughing. So maybe, maybe you're sick and, and you know that changes your life. Maybe you've got to stay home from work or home from school. You've got to go get some medicine. Maybe it's a more serious illness and there are doctor visits involved and medical tests and maybe even bad news and changes in lifestyle and, and even a life-threatening situation. All of that creates stress. We understand that. And when it happens, our bodies react to that. The loss of a loved one brings stress either because that loved one departed, left as a choice, or sometimes that loved one left because of death. And now there's a change in your life. That person you counted on is no longer there. The person you leaned on is no longer available. Some of you are heading into a challenging holiday season as Thanksgiving approaches and Christmas is just around the corner and you're in grief. You're, how am I going to walk through this? I hope you heard when the service began that we do have this coming Thursday night for those of you for whom grief is part of your celebration this year. We have a meeting this Thursday night at six called Surviving the Holidays. It's part of our grief share ministry. And if you'd be benefited from that, please plan to come on Thursday down to H4. Uh, That loss of a loved one creates that change in life that creates stress. Sometimes it's a loss of a job. You got called into the boss's office. uh, Things are tight. uh, Profits are down. Sorry, we've got to lay you off. Now suddenly you've got to look for a new job. You've got to figure out how to pay the mortgage, how to pay the bills. All of that is stressful. Unwelcome change creates stress. But that's not the only kind. Welcome change creates stress as well. Things that are pleasant, things that are positive. What if instead of getting laid off, you got a promotion? Well, that's good news. There's more income. That's a good thing. But maybe your hours are longer. You're making decisions that affect more people. There's more pressure on those decisions. Well, that's stressful as well. You go on a vacation. That's a change. You have a good time. But anyone ever come home from a vacation needing a vacation? Uh, it's pretty standard, okay? It's a change in our schedule that creates stress. All these things are good, but they still create issues. Christmas is stressful, is it not? How many of you are receiving family at Christmas this year? They're going to come visit you. Okay, you've got to think about how to house them, how to feed them. Even if you're not taking family in, all the shopping and all the presents. We love Christmas, but it's stressful. It's a change. So because of that, Because any change creates stress, we can acknowledge that stress is pretty much always with us. It is universal. You can't get away from it. But you don't have to be the victims of it. You don't have to be driven by it into choices and decisions that are detrimental and destructive. You don't have to be overwhelmed by it. Because God knows how we react to change. And His Word is full of good advice about how we should handle those moments. And for these few weeks, we're looking at that advice. What are the remedies to stress that God gives us in his word? 
The series began when John talked about Philippians chapter 4. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. That was the first sermon in the series. And was, yeah, things in our lives create that pressure, that anxiety. And instead of just simply dwelling in it, he said, turn to God in that moment. Take it to God. Make prayer a stress remedy. The week after that, Ron spoke from the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus' words when Jesus said, you worry about so much. You worry about your day-to-day needs. And Jesus said, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Don't you see how God provides for them? Don't you know you're more valuable to God than they are? So instead of sweating all that stuff, he said, seek first his kingdom. Keep your priorities in order and let God provide for you the way he does for the flowers and the birds. That's what we've looked at so far in this series. Today, we're going to look at a story from one of the Gospels in which two women, in fact, two sisters, respond to stress in radically different ways. One of them chooses a poor response. The other one chooses a better response. She chooses the good thing. And by the time our morning is done, I hope and I plan to give all of us a chance to follow the footsteps of that second sister who chooses the best And then we'll be able to do that as well as we go out this week into what is often a stressful life. Would you pray with me? And let's ask God to guide our thinking. Lord, we thank you that your word is clear, that your spirit is present, that you reach and speak into our lives. We invite you to speak now in this area because your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10, would you? If you don't have one, lift your hand up in the air. One of our volunteers will be glad to come and provide one for you. Luke chapter 10 is a passage in the Gospels in which Jesus, it follows on the heels of Jesus telling a very significant story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which he's illustrating what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Because it's in the context of a conversation he's having about the two greatest commandments. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. The parable of the Good Samaritan sort of illustrates that second commandment. But now this story that we're about to read sort of takes us back in the direction of the first. If we love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, what does that look like? What doors does that open? How should the life of someone who loves God look different from the life of someone who doesn't? What opportunities do we have if we love him? that aren't available otherwise. We're going to look at this very short passage, but a fairly well-known passage. We're going to begin by setting the context for it. Look at Luke chapter 10. I'll read verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary. Let's stop there for just a minute and kind of set the stage for what's happening here. We later find out in the Gospel of John, in fact, that this village is a little town called Bethany. Bethany was a small village just about two miles east of Jerusalem in Christ's day. And it's a town that comes into play fairly often. In fact, this is a family that comes into play fairly often. The family introduced here also appears in other passages in the Gospels. For now, we only know Mary and Martha, two of the sisters. But in the Gospel of John, we discover they had a brother named Lazarus. A very famous brother now, because yes, this is the man whom Jesus would eventually raise from the dead. This is the family we're talking about. And they appear several times in the Gospels. And it's clear that Jesus had a very special connection with these people. 
In fact, when the sisters saw that their brother was sick and they needed Jesus to come and heal him, they sent word and said, the one you love is ill. Now, they could have said Lazarus is ill. It still would have been accurate. But I'm so glad that they felt free to identify him that way. Jesus, here's, here's the one you love. I'm glad they knew Lazarus was in that category of people that Jesus loves. I believe, we'll see in a minute, definitely Mary at least felt that she was in that same category. I, I, just, uh, with these people, Jesus seemed to have an above and beyond connection. Maybe more than he even expressed to the average person in his circle. These folks had this intimate connection with him. I'm so glad that Jesus was like that. I'm so glad he was approachable enough that people could say, this is the one you love. I'm glad the Apostle John could describe himself with boldness as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I wonder if, here in this room, each one of us would feel that same confidence to say about ourselves, I am the one Jesus loves. I am the one Jesus loves enough to die for. I'm the one whose sin, sin Jesus wiped clean by that death so that I could be forgiven and spend eternity with Him. I'm the object of that affection of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that we would dare to label ourselves that way. Something in you might feel that to be a little presumptuous because you don't deserve it. And if you're wrestling with that, that's okay. Because you're right. <laughs> Which one of us deserves? Which one of us earned the right to be in that group of people, large group, gladly, that Jesus loves? Now, if it's up to us to be lovable, if we're patting ourselves on the back because we won Jesus' love, that would be different. We're not. We're saying, despite us, knowing me as I am, it amazes me that I am the one whom Jesus loves. I hope you can describe yourself that way because it's true. And you are. So this family really mattered to Jesus. Uh, in John chapter 11, of course, we know that that's the passage where Jesus comes to Bethany too late, apparently. Lazarus has died, and Jesus does decide to raise him from the dead after having very powerful conversations with each of the sisters about the fact that he's the resurrection and the life. You see, this family plays a big role in, in the Gospels. And then in the very next chapter in John, this is the, the family where Jesus is in their home reclining, relaxing and Mary the sister we'll talk about comes and pours perfume on his feet and Judas Iscariot is is astounded and offended and says why are we wasting this expensive perfume where we could sell it and give the money to the poor well he wanted it for his own pockets he was the treasurer don't you know uh, but he claimed to be caring for the poor and Jesus stops him says no don't stop her she's anointing me for burial in the same way Lazarus, who was right there next to him, in the same way that he died, I'm going to die. In the same way Lazarus was buried, I will be buried. And, and by the way, in the same way Lazarus rose again, I'm going to rise again. You see, this family matters. They play a significant role. And all this happened very close to Jerusalem, two miles away. It's interesting to me that these significant conversations are happening in the shadow, a stone's throw from the religious and political capital of Israel. So, friends, we have the setting, is, the, the setting is set now. The stage is set. Let's move on to a very deep connection between Mary and Jesus. Martha had a sister, verse 39, called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, in our day and age, we read it, and it, it might not even catch our eye. 
but you always have to put scriptural passages in the context of the day. This was a very bold move on Mary's part. You see, women didn't do that. What she was doing was making herself taking the role of a disciple, taking the role of a follower of this rabbi, this very important teacher from Nazareth. And most women wouldn't dare. It would be presumptuous to sit at the feet of a man like Jesus. But she must have known she was welcome. She definitely knew Jesus mattered. And she said, here's Jesus in my sister's house. What a great opportunity. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to sit myself at his feet. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't send her away. He accepts her in his circle of people who are following him and learning from him. This was, they were breaking rules, both of them, in this moment. But there was definitely this deep connection between Mary and Jesus. And so far, it's a sweet story, isn't it? He comes into a house. Somebody decides to break the cultural rules and sits at his feet. So far, so good. But no drama is complete without conflict. Am I right? Well, this is a dramatic story, and here comes the conflict. Martha is the hostess. It's her place. And she carries the weight and the responsibility of wanting to do this right. And so she sees what her sister is doing, and she reacts in verse 40 and 41. Not just 40, actually. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, obviously, you can tell by now that Martha is being cast as the one who's wrong in the story. We'll get to that in a minute, but I don't want us to land too heavily on her because I, we have to ask this question. Is she wrong to ask for help? Is she wrong to feel the responsibility of this, this day go well? No, she's not wrong. This is her home. Of course she carries that responsibility. She could even make the case, and we could make the case on her behalf, that she's putting into practice things Jesus taught elsewhere. When he said, whoever wants to be great in my kingdom will be the what? Servant of all. I'm being a servant. I'm taking care of the guests. I'm the one who's right. The case could be made that she was putting into practice what Jesus would have her do. And we'll see later, in what we see now already, that she is self-righteously declaring herself to be the one who's right. She wasn't wrong in what she was trying to do. But isn't that the most difficult temptation to resist? I'm rarely, really seriously tempted by things that are obviously evil. Okay, sometimes I am. Be honest. But for the most part, I'm not. I, I, I can't remember ever walking by a bank and saying, ooh, there's a lot of money in there. I think I'll steal it. That's just not a temptation that I'm vulnerable to. It, it's so obviously wrong, it doesn't even cross my mind. And that's the case with a lot of those. However... I'm much more likely to be tempted to get my priorities out of whack. To put the good in the place of the best. I'm much more likely to be tempted to do what is urgent instead of what's important. You too? Happens to me all the time. I'm much more, tempt I'm much more likely to fall into the trap of working for Jesus without giving attention to Jesus. That's a huge trap. And that's the trap that Martha fell into. Because here's Jesus in her living room. And she's off doing stuff for him. But she's not paying attention to him. And I understand that temptation. It's one I fall victim to all the time. 
So I don't want to be too harsh on her. And yet, we'll see in the story, Jesus does point her out as someone who's making the wrong choice. In fact, let's, let's walk through what she might have been thinking and mostly what she could have done in that moment. Remember now that the room is full of people. Jesus didn't travel alone. So there's a lot of responsibility on the person who feels the hostess role. And so she sees that she's working like crazy and her sister is doing nothing, her words. And here's how she could have responded. She might have been reflective. She might have been brought up short by her sister's example. She might have been made to examine herself. Wow, my sister's doing what I should do. I should learn from her. That would have been a good reaction. She might have been generous instead of, Stopping and imitating Mary, she might have at least said, I'm so glad that I can, by working hard, free my sister to do what she's doing. Because that's a good thing. That would have been a generous and a noble response. But sadly, she fell victim to the demanding reaction. She needs to do what I'm doing. My sister should be like me. Because I'm doing what's right, and I need help, and she's the one who should help. So she needs to change. She needs to meet my needs. She needs to provide for me. I believe Martha fell victim to what I call self-righteous stress. That in the midst of the change of her life, suddenly a house full of people and feeling the responsibility she feels, she felt the stress and she took self-righteous stress to an extreme. Here are the symptoms, I think, of self-righteous stress. First of all, that's when we focus on the problem. There is this issue. There's this... There's this thing I've got to figure out, and I'm going to focus completely on that. That's what Martha's doing. I've got a house full of people, and it's got to be done right, and this is a problem for me. I can't do it alone. Now, Jesus is sitting in her living room, but she doesn't see him. She doesn't even reflect on him. She needs help with the problem. When we focus on the problem, we're falling victim to the same thing. Then she developed a judgmental heart. My sister is wrong. My sister has failed me. My sister has left me, she says. So she's got this problem, and she's focused on the problem, and here's a person who could help and isn't, and she judges her as being wrong in her behavior and in her decision. So that judgmental heart grows. Self-pity becomes an issue. She has left me to do this alone. I've got so much going on. I'm overwhelmed. I can't handle it. Someone needs to help me. She needs to help me because look how much is happening. Friends, I I fall into that all the time. My life is so difficult. I've got a challenging week. I've got all these things going on. Too many plates spinning is my favorite phrase. When I want people to feel sorry for me, that's what I say. I've got a lot of spinning plates. If you you haven't watched spinning plates on TV for a long time, it makes no sense. But trust me, there were guys in the old days who would spin plates and there'd be 18 or 20 of them going at once. And When my life feels that way, yeah, I kind of want people to know. Because the response is, well, poor Mike, that must be hard on you. Well, thank you for saying that. Yes, it is hard on me. Yeah, yeah, you see where it goes. We fall into self-pity. But more importantly, self-righteous stress starts to change our relationship to God. It's already serious. It gets really serious now. We get a warped picture of God like Martha did. Do you hear the tone of accusation? Don't you care, Jesus? Don't I matter to you? Don't my problems register on your radar screen at all? Now think, there's obviously history here. Jesus came to this house. Mary had this connection. We don't know what happened before this day. 
We don't have all the details, but there's obviously history here. History enough that they should know, she should know better. She should know by now who Jesus is, that he, that he does love, that he does care. Her sister knew enough to take a gamble, enough to take a risk. She knew she'd be welcome at the feet of this wonderful teacher. But Martha is doubting him, doubting his love, doubting his character, doubting his care. Don't we fall into that trap? Lord, my life is really hard right now. Don't you care? Because if you did, you'd do something. And you're not doing anything. So I wonder. First, I wonder if you care. And secondly, I wonder if you're even there. Do you exist? These thoughts cross our mind when we fall in, when stress begins so dominating us that it makes us reject everything we already know about God. All the ways He's proven Himself in the past. And we get into a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately mindset. And lately means right now. And you're not helping me, so I wonder if you care. And then she falls into what I call an upside-down prayer life. You see what she does? She says, she gives Jesus an order. Tell her to help me. That's an imperative, friends. That's a command. That's her coming in front of the King of kings and Lord of lords and saying, here is your assignment. If you want to please me, this is what you will do. Do you see how it's upside down? Do you see how she's fallen into this trap of giving God his marching orders? Now, we can't, again, we can't go extreme here. Yes, God tells us. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. You have not because you ask not. Come and share your heart. All of that is valid. And it can be a wonderful way to pray. And we should pray that way. But if that's all our prayers are, if all we do is say, God, here's my expectations of you today. This is your homework assignment. This is what I need you to do for me. Then we're putting God in the role of servant. And we're in the role of master. Do you see how that's upside down? Mary had chosen instead to sit and listen, to hear what he has to say, to find out what kind of person do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Those are wonderful prayers too. Martha wasn't praying that prayer. She fell into this trap of self-righteous stress. Now let me ask, as you look at those, do you see yourself there at all? I do. I see a lot of you there. You're all messed up. <laughs> no, sorry. No. <laughs> Sadly, I see a lot of me there. I know I fall into those traps. I know I get a judgmental heart when I'm under stress. I know the self-pity thing. Oh, it's, it's cringeworthy to think how much I wallow in that sometimes. All of these, and oh, the picture of God. Wow. All the things he's done to prove his care. How little it takes to make me question whether he cares? It's embarrassing when you stop and think about it, but it's a symptom of this kind of stress. And the bottom line is, I understand Martha here. And with the nodding heads in the room, I think you do too. So now, Martha has lobbed a verbal hand grenade into the room, hasn't she? Because as far as we can tell, she didn't pull Jesus outside to say this. It probably happened in the room. And I would imagine everyone went, whoa, Martha's ticked. And how is the Lord of Lords going to respond? How will he answer her demand? Tell her to help me. Well, let's see what he says in verse 41. Martha, Martha, you're right, and I apologize. Mary, stop being so lazy. Go help your sister. Is that, is that, is that what he... No, that's not what he said at all, is it? 
No, that's what Martha wanted him to say. Don't we pray sometimes with an expectation of how God will respond? Martha did, I'm sure. But he gave her a very different response. He gave her a a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke. I think tender. Martha, Martha, twice, her first name. I'm glad God addresses us by our first name. And he says it twice. There's compassion there. There's tenderness there. But it's still a rebuke because he goes on to say, you're worried and upset about many things. Chances are good that's not the way Martha would have described herself in that moment. When we get in those moments, we have other labels for ourselves. I'm the responsible one. I'm the one who's looking at the big picture. I'm the one who carries all of these burdens. These are all the self-labeling that we do for ourselves. And she probably hoped God would agree with her self-description. And she hoped Jesus would say, yeah, yeah, you're right, you need help. But he didn't. He, he told her how he saw her in that moment. That can be a sobering thing to hear, especially when what he tells us is not what we want to hear. In this case, it wasn't what she wanted to hear. He labeled her not as responsible, not as detail-oriented, not as big-picture good servant. He said, you're worried and you're upset about many things. And then he goes on to compare her to her sister. He says, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's look at that one phrase. Few things are needed, really only one. If we had asked Martha in that moment, what do you need right now? Several answers probably would have come to her mind. I need help. I need help with my stuff. There's a lot to do, and I'm alone, and I need help. That's one possible response. She might have said, I need a bigger house. There's a bunch of you, and my place isn't that big. So as long as you're asking me what I need, I need a bigger house. She might have said, Lord, I need you to invent cell phones so you can call me next time before you come over so I can expect you because this is a lot of work on last minute notice. Any one of these might have been what she said. One thing I need, this is it. And when we're, when we're under stress, we probably have responses too to that question. What do I need most right now? What is the one thing? We might say, I need health. I need a healthy body. I need healing. I'm so sick and tired of this illness up and down and the doctor's visits and the bills that come in constantly. I need to be healthy. And that would be an honest response. I need stability in my life. The roller coaster and up and down and good days and bad days are exhausting. Lord, if you're going to give me one thing, give me stability. We might say, I need a relationship. I need you to fill the hole of the person who's gone. Either who chose to leave or who left because of death. Lord, I need... I need someone to fill that gap. That's the one thing I need. We might say, I, I need a good job. I need income. I need, I need the resources to do all this stuff. We might say any of those things. Martha might have said any of those other things. But Jesus says Mary chose. She chose what is better. What did Mary choose? She chose to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and rest in Him. He said, that's the one thing. Jesus endorsed her choice. He validated her behavior. He said, Martha, you think you're right and she's wrong, but you've got it flipped. She chose the best thing, and it's to relax with me, to spend time with me, and to let me pour into you. 
That's the best thing. And it will not be taken away from her. Why? Because it can't be. When we choose that, we can't lose it. We can lose everything else. What if you got health? Well, the next day it could be challenged again. What if that relationship was brought back into your life? Well, the next day, we all know, that could be gone again. What if you got the job you hoped for? In two weeks, who knows? We can lose all those things. And if we think they're the one thing we need most, they will disappoint us every time, sooner or later. But when we follow Mary's example, when we decide that sitting at the feet of Jesus is the best thing, that can't be taken away from us. Because Jesus is the only one who could, and He won't. He's glad we're there. He defends us the way He defends Mary to Martha. He says, no, this is right. And when my children rest in my presence, it's a good thing. And it won't be taken away. Friends, what's the solution that we should walk away from this passage with? Well, let me tell you what my solution used to be. I've been preaching on this passage for decades. It's always been one of my favorites. In fact, when we started this series, I said, dibs on Mary and Martha. I've always loved this story. And in past years, I would always end at this point in the message by saying, now listen, I see so much Martha in me. And, I, and like, you're probably like me, and we all need to find a way to be more merry. So let's, let's all together make a commitment. To, that's how I always had a need to qualify my application of this text because I felt so lacking myself. I felt like I was on the hamster wheel all the time, running, 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 and getting very little progress. And so I'd get to this passage, it would, it would grab my heart, and I'd say, wow, yeah, yeah, I'm way Martha, and I'm hardly any Mary, until five years ago. Five years ago, in the midst of a sabbatical, I rediscovered a principle that I had first come across two years earlier, tried to apply it to my life. It didn't work, didn't get traction, went back on the hamster wheel. But then on the sabbatical, I had a second shot at the principle of Sabbath rest, at the idea that Jesus means it when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I always saw that as a theoretical one-day thing. Then I came across some Christians who had been embracing it and practicing it intentionally. And I learned, I did some reading, and, and, and I decided, I want this to be in my life. I don't want to stumble upon it by accident. I want to search it. I want to pursue it. And I want to build it into my life. And so I became a diligent pursuer of Sabbath rest on a regular basis, which I define as regular, intentional, contemplative Christ-centered rest, that I would discipline myself to do that. Now, there are many ways to do it. One of the authors I read who called people to this kind of discipline, he did it by hiking. And I, I read about that, and well, wow, that's what I would need. Because, you see, I knew if I tried to do this in my home, if I tried to get away from things and sit at Christ's feet internally in my home, everything would be yelling at me in that moment. The computer... The bills on my desk, the, the, the honeydew list around the house, most of all, the TV. <laughs> okay, it's there, it's yelling, listen to me. And I knew I, I would struggle. So, this one author I read, he made a habit of going off hiking. 
And I said, wow, I, I think I could do that. And so on October 28, 2011, five years and two weeks ago, I put a day pack on my back. I found a trail near my home. And I went for a walk with Jesus. And that's all it was. Not fa- nothing fancy. There was, I didn't bring a list of prayer requests. I didn't bring a plan. I did bring an iPod with some songs because I knew music. I wanted to be part of these moments. And I just started walking. And I sang as, with the songs. I let God guide my thoughts. I let him use nature to point me to him, which is why he made it in the first place. The heavens declare the glory of God, his nature, his fingerprints remind us of him. And that was the first of what has become a weekly focus for me. It's rare that a week goes by that I don't head out and do that. These days I do it a little differently. I do it now instead of an iPod. I've got a a playlist on my phone of 470 worship songs that I'm adding to weekly. 40 hours (laughs) of music. I hit shuffle play. And oh, before I do that, I I I found a verse that I, I, I recite at every trailhead. It's Jeremiah 6.16. It says, I stand, stand at, I stand at the road and I look and I ask for the ancient path where the good way is and I walk in it because that's where I find rest for my soul. By the way, that's the verse Jesus was quoting in Matthew 11 when he said, I will give you rest. I've made that a part. I've built that in. And then I just start walking. And it's unstructured. It's spontaneous. Like I said, I don't have a rule or a formula for it. It's just getting away from my stuff going to spend time at the feet of Jesus. And it, it can become a, a, a prayer time for other people. It can become a worship time. It, it's just me being with Him. Now, my wife has embraced the same principle, but because of some physical limitations, she can't hike, she can't walk. So she is better than me at doing it around the house. She's doing it right now as we speak. Uh, on a weekly basis, she arranges her home so the things aren't yelling at her. She can't have stuff drying on, on, on the line in the garage. She can't even have it in the dryer. It's got to be somewhere else. She, she's worked out ways to do it. So her mind is free to just focus on her music and her God and her time with him. Friends, this has become a weekly, rejuvenating, refreshing time for me. I can't tell you how much it's meant over the years. I can tell you how wonderful it is now. Where in the old days I would say, oh, I'm so much Martha. I've got to put more Mary in my life. I still want more. But it's so good to stand here and say, I get Mary now. I've tasted what she tasted that day. I've learned to build it more into my life intentionally. And I'm not perfect at it. And there's times when it's a waste of time because my brain is all over the map. But when I have made that time sweet and special, and intimate. God meets me there. And God strengthens me there. And it's choosing the better thing. And it can't be taken away. So I want to invite you to consider exploring that. If, if you want to know, now I realize my life, empty nester, I've got lots of time, I've got enough health to walk around. It's easier for me and my wife than it might be for some of you with little rugrats running around. I, I, I get that. But if you, there's ways for families to do this as well. If you say, I'm just going to carve out time, regular time, to just rest with my Lord, I can guarantee it's going to be good for you. And I can't explain it all in a few minutes, so I invite you to to go to a, a website. I've been writing about Sabbath for about four and a half years now. It's called Sabbath Thoughts. The, the URL is there. 
If you can't write it down, just Google my name and Sabbath. It'll pop up. I invite you to look, uh, go to About Sabbath Thoughts. It'll take you back to the first two posts that I've written about this. And there's four and a half years of stuff there. Not a lot. I, I don't post it every week. It's like once or twice a month. So it's not that hard to get through. But if you want to explore this principle, feel free to do that. That might be a huge jump for some of you. And maybe that would be, whoa, that would be a lot to take off a big bite like that. But even if it's not that principle, I want us to leave here today with an answer to this question. What will you do this week to choose what is better? What will change in your spiritual life this week so you've got a little more Mary and a little less Martha? It could be something very simple. If you are somebody for whom the Bible is pretty much only what you open here among us, you might say, I need to read the Bible more. I'm going to read a chapter a day. You might start in the Gospel of John. You might uh, get a Bible reading plan online. There's lots of ways to structure that. But maybe you'll decide, I'm going to read the Bible more. You might be one for whom prayer is something you pretty much do before you eat, and that's about it. Lord, thank you for this meal is the extent of your prayer life. And you might say, no, I'm going to intentionally pray. I'm going to find a place to sit when I do, or I'm going to do it while I'm driving to work or driving to school. You, You figure out what is your next step in having an intimate connection with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What is your next step in sitting at the feet of Jesus? Maybe you do want to explore Sabbath and and, and get bold and figure out how you would structure it. Great. But whatever your need is, whatever level you're at that you want to make a little bit progress to be a little more Mary and a little less Martha, I can guarantee you two things. One, it will enrich you. And two, it will not be taken away from you. You will have it. You will enjoy it, whatever it is. And God will smile because you're welcome at his feet. And he likes it when we go there. So as Jala plays, I'm going to give you a minute to reflect. Answer the question in your own mind. Walk out of here with a commitment. And then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, thank you that Mary was welcome at your feet. And thank you that we are too. Forgive us for resisting that call in our hearts to relax with you and rest. Forgive us for filling our lives with stuff instead of you. And Lord, many commitments have been made in this room in the last two minutes. Many goals have been set. But none of them will be any good unless you fill them, unless you breathe into them unless you give us the boldness and the discipline to act on them. Lord, would you do that, please? Would you do that so our lives with you can be rich, so that we can rest in you and know what that truly means, 
so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth the way you've called us to. Lord, give us the discipline to love you and seek you. And thank you that you'll never take it away. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.